0: Let's pray, and then we will dive in. Lord, we thank you and praise you for today. We thank you that we get to be together as a class. Lord, we thank you for giving evidence of yourself in the world that you created, every bit of it pointing us to you. Lord, we recognize that we so often exchange um, the glory of the creator for the created, and we fall prey to idolatry. And so we pray that you'd forgive us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to worship you wholeheartedly with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, we ask and pray your blessing on this class today. Lord, that you would use it to strengthen us in our ability to um, point others to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, today we are going to talk about the teleological argument for God, but. Uh, Like we've been doing, I want to do some review first. And uh, I'll save this like talking stuff. Um, Well, no, let's do this first. I think it'll make more sense just as a review. So we said last time, before we dove into the moral argument for God, that the ultimate foundation for our belief in God is God's revelation of himself, both his revelation, his general revelation in creation on the one hand, um, showing that he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, and that is going to be much of what we focus on today when we talk about the teleological argument for God, because that's the argument from design. That's what that word means. We'll cover that in a minute. But we also talked about how God revealed himself through the human conscience, which is to say, people know that there is a right and a wrong, which points us to a moral lawgiver. That's general creation. It's general because it goes out to everybody, everybody has access to it, everybody knows it, but it's also general because it's not very specific about what it tells us about God. It's limited in that sense. The other way that God reveals himself is through his special revelation. And again, there are two ways primarily that he does this. First is the word of God revealed through the prophets, the apostles. Uh, So that's his written word. And the other is through the word incarnate, the word made flesh. That is Jesus Christ. That is his primary way that he has revealed himself. And then we also talked last time, uh, by, just by way of review today, uh, about how we're not trying to become equipped to be philosophical debaters. We're not preparing ourselves to sit in a debate at a table with a moderator before an audience. That's not what we're trying to prepare ourselves to do. What we're trying to prepare ourselves to do is street-level apologetics. That is to say, to be able to give winsome... Uh, responses in conversation, convincing uh, communication in conversation with other people about what we believe, why we believe it, and to be able to give reasons for it. So street-level apologetics, we want to be able to share our faith with other people, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our friends, with our family, and we want to be winsome about it, but we also want to be reasonable at the same time. Um, so last time we talked about the moral argument for God, and I found this video, and I think it does a good job of summarizing the moral argument for God. We'll watch this, and then we'll just jam a little bit more, and then we'll start today's topic. Sound good? Yeah. All right, so hopefully this will work. That's not a good sign. (laughs) Okay, my volume is on. No, that's, I don't want that. Why is the sound not on? I don't think it's gonna be that. Hmm, That's so weird.
1: There you have it. Undeniable proof. All right. Please Can you be good without God? Let's find out. Absolutely astounding. There you have it. Undeniable proof that you can be good without believing in God. But wait, the question isn't, can you be good without believing in God? The question is, can you be good without God? See, here's the problem. If there is no God, what basis remains for objective good or bad, right or wrong? If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And here's why. Without some objective reference point, we have no way of saying that something is really up or down. God's nature provides an objective reference point for moral values. It's the standard against which all actions and decisions are measured. But if there's no God, there's no objective reference point. All we're left with is one person's viewpoint, which is no more valid than anyone else's viewpoint. This kind of morality is subjective, not objective. It's like a preference for strawberry ice cream. The preference is in the subject, not the object. So it doesn't apply to other people. In the same way, subjective morality applies only to the subject. It's not valid or binding for anyone else. So, in a world without God, there can be no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. God has expressed his moral nature to us as commands. These provide the basis for moral duties. For example, God's essential attribute of love is expressed in his command to love your neighbor as yourself. This command provides a foundation upon which we can affirm the objective goodness of generosity, self sacrifice, and equality. And we can condemn as objectively evil greed, abuse and discrimination. This raises a problem. Is something good just because God wills it, or does God will something because it is good? The answer is, neither one. Rather, God wills something because He is good. God is the standard of moral values, just as a live musical performance is the standard for a high-fidelity recording.
0: Without your love
1: The more a recording sounds like the original, the better it is. Likewise, the more closely a moral action conforms to God's nature, the better it is. But if atheism is true, there is no ultimate standard. So there can be no moral obligations or duties. Who or what lays such duties upon us? No one. Remember, for the atheist, humans are just accidents of nature, highly evolved animals. But animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a cat kills a mouse, it hasn't done anything morally wrong. The cat's just being a cat. If God doesn't exist, we should view human behavior in the same way. No action should be considered morally right or wrong. But the problem is, good and bad, right and wrong, do exist. Just as our sense experience convinces us that the physical world is objectively real, our moral experience convinces us that moral values are objectively real every time you say hey that's not fair that's wrong that's an injustice you affirm your belief in the existence of objective morals we're well aware that child abuse racial discrimination and terrorism are wrong for everybody always is this just a personal preference or opinion no The man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5. What all this amounts to, then, is a moral argument for the existence of God. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists.
0: Atheism... So that was the... That was the three premises, or the two premises in the conclusion for the moral argument.
1: For God exists.
0: Okay, got those.
1: Atheism fails to provide a foundation for the moral reality every one of us experiences every day. In fact, the existence of objective morality points us directly to the existence of God.
0: Credit, reasonable faith with William Lane Craig. So there you have it. Moral argument for God summarized in five minutes. Really well done, too, I would say. If you guys need a review, that would be a good place for you to to go to connect. All right, so what were... If you had to... This second, someone comes up to you and says, Hey, what's the... What's the summary of the moral argument for God? I lost my base because that thing doesn't stay connected. I'll take that back to my phone. Oh, are you sure? Okay. What would you guys say? Two premises and a conclusion. And hold on, there's one more thing. This. Okay, two premises and a conclusion. What are they? It's okay if you put them in your own words.
2: Um, I, think I might not be able to do my own words. Here's what I wrote. If God does not exist, objectives and morals don't exist. Since objectives and morals do exist, God does exist. Yes. I don't think I have all the parts there. I think I have like a little
0: something there. But There's one not- tweak that you need to make. Okay. It's not that objectives and morals... It's objective mo- objective moral. That's what I Objective morality.
2: Object, since objective morals, that's what it says. Okay. Do exist. Is that right? Go back to the first premise. If God does not exist, objective morals and values...
0: There you go. Perfect. Exist. Yes, that's exactly right. All right. Yeah. Yeah, if God doesn't exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God must exist. That's the moral argument for God. And remember we talked through arguments for those two premises last time showing why those two premises are true and therefore also the conclusion is true. And I'm not going to go back through those. If you want uh, to go through those again you just have to go on to the recording. <laughs> So I posted the recordings on Sermon Audio. You weren't here when I announced that. Um, so if you want to go back and listen to it, you can. All right. Last thing: how? How then did the moral argument? How does that help point us to the gospel? That was where we concluded. I mean, because we've all broke broken the objective moral law. Yeah. And so, like, we all stand guilty under it. Um, and whether we acknowledge or not, we all know it to a degree. Um, and so if there is a God who has given us that objective morality and we've broken it, what what then, what next? Yes, 100%. Do uh, you remember how we got there? Did you guys hear what Brendan said? So all human beings know that there is such a thing as right and wrong, objectively. We all know that we've broken this objective law, Right. But we suppress this truth and unrighteousness. So this idea, the concept of morality, objective morality, leads us to the gospel because we're talking now about sin, essentially. Oh, thank you. Um, We're talking about sin. Because we've broken the law that this lawgiver has laid down. And this is when the gospel begins to make sense. So... um, Yeah, okay, we can move then from from helping them understand they've broken this law to what has God done in Christ to fix this problem. All right, that's enough for review. We're moving on. Uh, We're going to talk about the teleological argument for God. Uh, Remember last time, too, back of the napkin drawing? Do you remember the drawing, the line example? Keep that in your back pocket for when you... uh, when you talk about this with people because it's super straightforward and pretty pretty easy concept to grasp once it once you see it in front of you. So alright. Uh, we might cover um the cosmological argument if we have time. I don't know that we'll have time. We'll see. If we do it'll be brief. Um, it's connected to this design argument. Uh, we might touch on briefly the anthropic principle, just because I like to say the anthropic principle. <laughs> this is like, uh, you've probably heard of it stated this way it's the argument about the fine tuning of the universe, or the Goldilocks principle. It's just right here on Earth for life, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, but teleological argument. Telos, that's the Greek word. It means "n telos, T-E-L-O-S. Teleological is T-E-L-E-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the argument, just think of this, it's a big fancy word. Just think of it as the argument from design, <coughs> if that makes any sense. I, I encourage you to think of it that way because it will help you <laughs> Use it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, So, kind of like our sense of right and wrong points us to a lawgiver. The evidence of design points us to a designer. That's at the bottom level what we're talking about here. the simplest way to say it. So, the Greek word telos means end or goal or purpose. And so we're focusing on the purpose or the design. Uh, The designer must exist because all things, especially living things, show evidence of design. Now, I want to keep trying to bring us back as much as I can to this idea of apologetics as knowing what we believe, why we believe, and being able to give a reason for those things, right? So how does this connect to what we believe as Christians? Well, there is a God who created the entire universe, He is a God of order and not chaos. And he created the world with order and purpose or design. God spoke the world into existence, creating everything from nothing. God is a powerful, intelligent, eternal, personal being. So those are things that we believe and they're connected to this argument from design. How does this help us to do street level apologetics? Um, these are my thoughts and maybe you guys I'll, I'll just open it up in a second to see if you guys have additional thoughts on this but this is how I was thinking about it as I was preparing uh, it's a subject again like the moral argument that's easily raised I will say that working as a pharmacist I talked about this a lot so it's going to come up when you start talking about origins God the world the way things are um so it comes up for different reasons, but it comes up a lot. And second, it's a subject that we can use to show that the biblical worldview is reasonable and fits the evidence better than evolution, which cannot explain the data. And when I say the data, I mean things that we see, observe in the world as it exists. The data like that we get from science, if that makes any sense tracking? So I'll say this again. I think that the, the teleological argument, the argument from design is important because it shows that the Christian worldview is reasonable and does a better job of explaining the evidence than evolution does. And it shows that faith and science agree and fit together well. I say this because I think sometimes people think that faith and reason or faith and science, don't fit together. And one of the reasons they think that is because of uh, evolution, origins, and so forth. Third, it's a subject that allows us to talk about man's true and ultimate purpose. So while we're talking about design, it leads naturally to, well, why did God create man? Right There's, There's purpose and order on the micro level, but there's more to it than that and our ultimate purpose is to worship it's to glorify god and it's a subject that i think can lead us to the gospel because for this reason because man is made to worship god and we don't we exchange the worship of the creator for the created showing that we like this is we're back in romans chapter one if you're looking for like uh, the biblical anchor for this, right? And we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, at the end. So that's how it helps us to do street-level apologetics. Other thoughts? I wanted to open this up and see if you wanted to add to that. Uh, well, I don't know that this is
3: particularly what you're looking for, but a thought that I do have and something that I've encountered in conversations. With a couple of other people, it, it's this idea that so you, you mentioned, you know, the, <coughs> the opposition of, that people seem to have between faith and reason, yeah. And um, to me, so what, what I have um, observed is some people seem to think that faith is a feeling, mm-hmm. it's just a feeling, yeah. It's, it's you know, and I'm like, no. No, my faith is based on evidence. Now, of course, there is that aspect, and I'm not—you know—some of these things are so deep, and I cannot delve the depths of, of all of this. It's too much for me, all of it combined. But, um, but I can say my—it's my, not blind my faith. Correct. There's evidence there. Yep. Some of that evidence is is believed by faith. I don't. I mean, I don't. Um, I said that backwards. There there is a degree to which you can't prove right you know, absolutely that God existed. But the evidence the preponderance of evidence mm-hmm. that Christ existed and was raised from the dead and that God is and all of that is is overwhelming. Yep. And so I think it's helpful to point out that faith is not a feeling. Christian faith is not a feeling.
0: Yeah. Amen. That's the entire subject of what we're talking about at stands tonight. <clears throat> so you get a little preview of things to come. Um, it's super important because it's often supposed that faith is like Dawkins would say, faith is believing in the absence of evidence or because of the lack of evidence. And that's not it at all. If we, it, the It's better. Um, Because of the misunderstanding of how the word faith is used in English, trust is a better word in our English language. So the the Greek word is pistis, and it can be translated faith or belief, but it can also be translated trust. And it's, it's better to translate it trust because it gets at what biblical faith really is. So faith always has an object. In in this case, in Christian Christianity, our the object of our faith is Christ, right? And there are good reasons for believing what we believe, which is the whole reason why we're doing apologetics in the first place. Yes. So yes, I 100% agree with you. Um, and it's tied to this because we can show, this is just one subsection of how we can show that our faith is reasonable, that there is evidence, that it is grounded on something. Does that make sense? So the way I like to think about this is let's say that this circle is is the is like the point of faith, right? What we do in apologetics is we make these arguments for what we believe, all these different arrows pointing to this dot. So you've got the moral argument for God, you've got the teleological argument for God, and you've got all these different things that we're going to do in this class. We're going to talk about the proof of the resurrection, the historical reliability of the Bible, we're going to talk about the historicity of the Gospels, we're going to talk about all that different evidence that we have. But you notice how none of those arrows connect directly to the dot. At some point you have to choose to believe it. To choose to trust it, right? It doesn't take you all the way. But by the time you get, you know, 14 or 15 arrows all pointing you to the reality of what we're saying, it becomes more and more and more reasonable to believe. And then at some point, if the person continues to refuse, then it's like, okay, you no, know, you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Like, you know this to be true. And that's where, like, the presuppositional aspect of apologetics, I feel like, becomes more powerful. Because it's a call directly to believe, right? It's like, you have the evidence. It's in front of you, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, none of that happens apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. It's we can't saying, make people do we that. We make that no. themselves? They nope. can't believe it Correct. on
2: their own. They can't get there. So we can... Kind of like, but they wouldn't ask those questions. Yeah. If maybe. the magnetism yeah. of the Holy Spirit wasn't, well, they wouldn't sincerely be asking them. I
0: don't oh, yes, I, yes, yes. I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, yeah if yeah.
2: the Holy Spirit wasn't drawing them. So yeah. we become kind of like, you know, the track the Holy Spirit put there to kind of guide in that direction.
0: But that last, you know, I just don't know. The last bit, it's only going to be the Spirit. And even, I mean, like, if we're really being accurate here, We're going to say that, like we said last time, how does the Holy Spirit work in apologetics? I'm going to say that even our ability to draw this line, supposing this is like the teleological argument, (laughs) right, or whatever it is we're talking about with whoever we're talking about it with, our ability even to make this line, to draw this line in our words comes from the Spirit, and their ability to grasp this comes from the Spirit, and their ability to get from the end of this to the dot in faith also comes from the Spirit. So, like, at the end of the day, we're just going to keep That's going the, back to this idea. That
2: the Holy Spirit put there. Yep. He put us there, you know, He made us, the, the, you know, gave us that opportunity. Yes. But then, that track doesn't get all the way to the station.
0: Correct. And at the, the end of the day, like, we might only with a with any individual person. We might only get to lay one track, and we're just one piece on that person's journey. And someone else is going to lay another piece of track, and someone else is going to lay another piece of track. And a, you know what I mean? Like this is like a sort of a team effort, <laughs> if you will. Um, okay, last comment, and then we need to keep going.
4: So the the, the challenges of the various uh, non biblical cosmologies. Uh, explanations of how things came to be um, runs into eventually they run into a, uh, the equivalent of a turtles all the way down uh, argument meaning you know you back things up and you say well you know the world that
0: yes wait save that because we'll get there mm-hmm.
4: all right we'll get there but but what I want to what I want to drive at though is that the biblical worldview is the only one that begins ex nihilo and, and so we are not making an appeal, for example, to energy and matter being a state of energy because, well, what happened before there was energy, Right. example? It, it just begging their questions, accepting their premise, and then but then challenging the basis of their premise, it eventually falls apart because they appeal to the turtles all the way down.
0: The yeah, and that's more in the vein... I'll just mention this now because it's more in the vein of the cosmological argument, right? So... If, if the teleological argument is an argument from design to a designer, the cosmological argument is an argument from a cause to a causer or mover.
4: Exactly.
0: So we, we, we see that the universe had a beginning. There's evidence of that, right? And it's not eternal. It hasn't existed forever. So there's evidence in the world for that. It had to start somewhere, and things don't just start on their own. Like we see that in experience. So for every cause, there's a causer, right? Uh, and so what Dan is talking about is you can't have an infinite regression of causes. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't work. So there has to be a beginning to it somewhere.
4: free speculation. They, they 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 fraudulently call it theory. Isn't it isn't this theory there's, there's scientific basis for anything being labeled to theory yeah um, so the, the object speculation that requires even greater faith for example is, is an example of trying then to beg that question even farther
0: right okay let's keep plugging along on the design argument um There is evidence for God in nature. So this is uh, sort of more biblical foundation for what we believe. And then we'll look a little bit more at science. So the whole world displays the eternal power and divine nature of God. Romans chapter 1. His wisdom, his creativity. We can think of texts like Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God day to day pours out speech. We also think of God's common grace in designing the world to produce what we need for life. So Acts 14, 17 says, yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The more we know about the complexity of life, especially human life, the clearer the evidence then that God has given us. Of course, you have to have the eyes to see and accept the evidence for what it is. Um, And the key here then goes back to what Candy mentioned, We do not have blind faith. There's an overwhelming amount of evidence in creation of God's existence, which is why the Bible says it is the fool that concludes there is no God. Mm -hmm. Psalm 14, 1. The faith that God requires of us is not faith without evidence, but trust, confidence based on reliable evidence. All right, so let's do a brief summary of the teleological argument. Uh, The design that we see in the world points to a designer. That's the simplest way to say this. It's very, I think we can remember that. (laughs) We see design and it points us to a designer. Uh, In other words, we're not here by accident. The universe has been so intricately designed that there must have been an intelligent designer. Just like when we see a watch, we know that it was created by human intelligence, the world shows design and points to then to a powerful designer. Here's how the basic argument works. I tried to simplify this, so you'll probably see different um, ways that these premises and conclusion are laid out, um, but here's, here's me trying to simplify it as best I could for us. Premise one, the universe displays an amazing amount of design and intelligibility. Premise two, either this intelligible order is the product of chance or of intelligent design. Three, such design only comes from an intelligent designer, not by chance. Conclusion, therefore, the universe must come from an intelligent designer, God. So here's the argument. Every design has a designer. When we look at the universe as it stands, we see this design everywhere. And so we conclude that the universe must have had a designer. Um, so here's here's William Paley William Paley lived from 1743 to 1805 and he made this watchmaker argument it's very well known. My opinion is is that uh, it still hasn't been refuted <laughs> um, despite people 's best efforts to refute it i don't I do not think it's been refuted um, So this is coming from a book by Geisler and Turek, and I don't remember what book it is. I just have that in my notes. (laughs) All right. So here's the illustration. If we're walking along in the woods and we find a watch laying on the path, what would we conclude is the cause of the watch? The wind and the rain? Erosion? Some kind of combination of natural forces? No, we would not say, oh, what a remarkable coincidence that all of these gears and parts came together perfectly to form this watch. (laughs) We wouldn't conclude that. We would say, we would recognize it was put together by someone, someone with capability, someone with intelligence, who designed it and who built it. We would know immediately that this watch was designed. Yet, the universe is even more precisely designed, far more precisely designed than a watch. And this is where we could talk about the anthropic principle, but I don't have all that data in front of me, but you can go and look at the, the Goldilocks principle and how the universe is finely tuned. Um, so when we look at at these things, uh, things that have been designed, a watch, a computer, a car, a plane, we naturally assume that someone made it, right? Yeah. Now we often think, I was thinking about this this week, we often think in terms of technological things like gadgets, gizmos, which is true because we see that that's like a place where design is obvious. But the same is true in like, artistic works. So think about Mount Rushmore. You've got the faces of four presidents carved into a mountain, Nobody shows up to Rushmore and goes, it's amazing that the wind and the rain over t- millions of years has eroded these rocks into the faces of these four United States presidents. It's amazing that they're all United States presidents, you know, like, and these presidents in particular, it's all happened by chance. No, no, nobody concludes that, right? In fact, when you go to the little uh, little center and that you see how they did it, you're like, "Well, that's super cool! How they like used explosives and chisels, and the whole process was amazing." But we know immediately, right? The same thing is true then, not just with machines, but with with art. And the point is, is that these things don't appear by chance, but by design, on purpose. And the same goes for the universe. Life is incredibly complex. Even the simplest forms of life are super, super complex. And this is one of the greatest arguments, in my opinion, against evolution and for design. Because when Darwin came up with his theory, he couldn't look into the cell like we can now. He thought it was very simple. He thought it was like a goo. And now we know it's vastly complex, even at the most microscopic level. So, for instance, uh, the DNA in the nucleus of an amoeba, just the nucleus, exceeds the amount of information that is included in a 30-volume set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's just in the nucleus. If you took all the DNA in, in one amoeba, it would be the equivalent of a thousand sets of an Encyclopedia Britannica. And that's one of the simplest forms of life on Earth. We're not even talking about human beings. We're, we're just down on this tiny little level. And the information in DNA is not random. It's super specific. It codes for different information to produce that amoeba. Now, we need to stop here for a minute and, and just say that atheists, on the other hand, claim that all of the complexity of life is the pro- the, the product of two naturalistic mechanisms, random chance and natural selection. So random mutations and then natural selection, there's some kind of benefit that's conveyed is the cause for the incredible complexity that we see in the world. But this is contrary to the evidence. And I think it fails to explain the evidence. And the more we go forward in science, the more that we learn, the greater the case against evolution as an explanation gets which is awesome (laughs) yeah I think the argument I've heard against that
3: is something I know. I think you may even have mentioned this at some point in our Bible studies that it'd be like taking a a scrabble bag shaking it up dumping out the pieces and having it spell a word
0: yeah yeah and more but yes that's one great example or there's this British astronomer, his name's Sir Frederick Hoyle. He said, the chance that higher life forms arose by evolutionary processes is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 <laughs> plane from the materials therein. Right? That's 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 his um, argument. So, why is that so, though? I want to talk about why this is, and a couple of resources that I wanted to mention today. If you want more on this, one is a book by William Dembski. I have not read this one, but it's referenced often. It's called The Design Revolution. Um, that would be one that I would recommend. It's on my shelf, and eventually I'll read it. The other one I have read uh, more than once. It's called Darwin's Black Box uh, by Michael Behe, And I'm gonna we're going to talk a little bit about this book, today, uh, because I think his argument, his, his book really is arguing, it's making one argument for design. So there are other um, arguments for design, many arguments for design in creation that we could talk about, okay? But he's a microbiologist, and so he's coming at it from a microbiologist perspective, but what he, what he talks about is... This concept called irreducible complexity, which I don't think has been refuted either. Uh, though people have tried, it, their arguments fail to explain. So I want to talk a little bit about this because it's it's super important. If you haven't read it, you should definitely grab this and read it. Darwin's Black Box. Um, had the opportunity of hear him hearing him lecture when Sarah and I lived in the Twin Cities years ago, and that's what actually put me on to this book in the first place, uh, him giving that lecture. So it was super cool.
4: So, in, in the Darwinian model, the yeah. neo-Darwinian today, because Darwinian, Darwin's uh, own predictions said if, if this doesn't prove true, the whole thing falls apart. Yep. And so the neo-Darwinists have tried to resurrect it. And so we we don't live in a Darwinian mindset. It's a neo-Darwinism that is infused with all sorts of politics and so forth. But to combine Behe and uh, Paley, if you're walking through that forest and you come across a watch that is working, points to the designer, but the neo-Darwinians would then have to claim that you don't just find a watch, you find a forest filled with almost watches.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah.
4: And and there are none because it's irreducibly complex.
0: Correct. And we want to explain that today. We, we we want to try to give you a working level grasp of that concept. So it sounds like raise your hand if you've heard of this concept irreducible complexity. Two. A little three. Two and a half.
2: <laughs>
0: Two and a half people. All right. Two and two halves, so that equals three, because those two halves. um, Yeah, quick dad joke. I was at the bookstore, and I saw this book that said um, it can solve 50% of your problems, so I bought two copies. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I can't can't help it. I mean, dad jokes. They're just awesome. For those of you on the recording, um, that's just a freebie for you. All right. So, yes, this is what Darwin said. Darwin's Achilles heel. If it can be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Now, even uh, people who are neo-Darwinistic, they still hold to this process of natural selection Random chance, natural selection, gradually over time. They still hold to that. Uh, I was reading this week in preparing for today, and Dawkins was quoted as saying something like, look, if if it happened quickly, um, then we're back into the realm of miracle, and that's not an explanation. So it's like, there's a certain amount of uh, just dogged refusal to accept the evidence And a holding fast to this theory because they don't want the alternative, which is a creator. Okay, so understand that behind this is this, what Romans tells us, what can be known about God is plain, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So we're going to make our best arguments, but at the end of the day, God has to open up their minds to receive it and to overcome uh, the barriers, the 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 suppressing of this evidence in unrighteousness.
2: Here's what I really struggle with, and, um, and I want to put it in here now because maybe you can address as we go along. That, like in this moment, but yeah, why so many Christians s- embrace some form of evolution? Like, why why the embracing of why why try to jump the chasm and go over there? When we have everything in Scripture that says what God did, yeah. why are they? Why are they jumping ship? Why aren't they? You know, why are they suppress? Why are Christians suppressing the truth? What's going on that we have so many people saying, "Well, yes, I believe in God, a designer in this intelligent design thing," but still millions. of Like, why are we playing with that? fire from hell i don't get it yeah and so I,
0: that's a no it's a wonderful question i want to get through this material yes. remind me if we can't talk about it today we'll talk about it in the review portion of next week can we do that yeah i, um, like I think there's some good and bad answers to that question if that makes any sense so uh all right let's talk about okay so just to remind us where we are Atheists are claiming that all the complexity that we see in the world is a result of two naturalistic processes, natural selection and random chance. Random chance and natural selection, right? And I want to say that this is a terrible explanation for complexity. And the reason why that's a bad explanation, I think, is irreducible complexity, which is Behe's argument. I think this is great for helping undermine what they're saying, what they're arguing. And if we can grasp this one argument about irreducible irreducible complexity, it can be applied to numerous examples. Many, many examples. But what I really like about it is that it's we're getting all the way down to the simplest forms of life. We're not at the organ level like... We're not arguing, hey, the eye is really complex and there's no way that the eye could come about by chance. That's true. That's true, right? What we're saying is, is take any one of the cells in your eye. And that's so complex that even that couldn't come about by chance, let alone the entire eye. It's like devastating for, for evolution, Go ahead.
4: And the, the, the evolutionists, the neo-Darwinians, they they abandon the question altogether. And they, they make a tautological response and say, well, it is. Therefore, you've, you've not proven anything. Yeah. Because it is. And it's a, absurd well, that people accept that.
0: One of the things that Behe says in his book, which I don't have in my notes, but I'll bring up here anyway because I think it's a cool, cool argument, is it's something the way they try to describe it is something akin to this. How do you how do you make a, a, a boombox? I mean, you guys remember what a boombox yeah. is. Um, whatever for you young people it's like this giant radio with like a CD player and tape deck yeah, and stuff. Control. Yeah. Um, people don't have those anymore. Okay, like how do you how, yeah. How do you how do you get a boombox, right? Well, you take a set of speakers and you plug it into an amplifier and you plug it into a CD player and you, pl- and you add to it a tape deck and you add uh, a radio antenna, right? And that's how you get uh, a boombox. The problem is, is that if you just take any one of those parts that you just mentioned, every one of those parts has to be explained. How did you get that? How did you, <laughs> how did you get a working speaker? How did you get a working uh, tape deck? How did you get a working CD player? And so it's like, it presses, like they, they, there really isn't an explanation on the evolutionary side of things for how this could come about. Okay, so let's jam, because we got about 10 minutes. I don't know if we're going to be able to do this all, but we'll try. All right, irreducible complexity. What is something that's irreducibly comp- complex? This is Behe's definition, page 39. It is a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, wherein the removal of any one of those parts caused the system to effectively cease functioning. So there, just try to put this in layman's terms, you have some functioning system that's composed of several component parts and in order for that thing to work, all of those parts must be present at the same time. If you remove any one of those pieces, it stops working. Okay, But not only do the parts have to be present, the parts have to fit. The parts have to work properly. So supposing you need uh, some kind of a, a bar. Like I'm going to use this illustration of a mousetrap in a second. The bar can't just be present. It has to be the right length. If it's too short, it won't work. If it's too long, it won't work. So not only do all the parts have to be present, all the parts have to be properly fitted to each other for it to be functioning, all right? So I tried to draw this mousetrap. This is from the book. So I just copied his drawing the best I could. Um, Thanks. I figure that this is kind of like the line illustration where, like, mousetraps aren't that hard to draw. You're not going to do it this fancy, maybe, like, if you're hanging out with somebody, but you get the idea, right? And everybody kind of knows what a mousetrap is, so they can have a mental picture of what the mousetrap is. So um, the point that Behe is arguing is that, and this is a quote from page 39, an irreducibly complex system cannot be produced directly by slight successive modifications of a precursor system because any precursor to an irreducibly complex system that's missing a part is by definition non-functional. Since natural selection can only choose systems that are already working, then the biological system would have to be produced in one fell swoop instead of gradually. Because you have to have all these parts together at the same time. So let's go through this mouse trip example. In determining step one is to figure out is a system irreducibly complex, you have to specify the function of the system in all of its component parts. Thankfully, because of our technology, we can do this with living systems, not just simple machines, right? We can now get into the cell. This is why this is so important. So if you read this book, he'll go through things like the bacterial flagellum, for example, or he'll go through the human clotting cascade, for example, and show how these things apply to living organisms and human mechanisms and so forth. So step one, figure out what's the purpose here the purpose is to kill mice, right? That's the purpose of this simple machine. And what are the parts in their function? So you have a flat wooden platform that acts as a base, that's holding everything together. You have a metal hammer that snaps shut to kill the mouse. You have the spring, right? With this extension bar that holds the hammer down um, and it provides energy when the trap is charged. So that's that's function. Then you have this sensitive catch Um, so that it will release. And you have this metal bar that, and this is, don't judge, that's too long, obviously. All right, so this would probably not work, but whatever, it's a drawing. Um, So you you have this function, you identify all the functions. Then you determine if a system, you ask, well, are all these parts necessary for it to function? Will the trap function if you remove any one of these pieces? And the answer is, no, it won't. Like, if you remove the platform, you'll just have a bunch of parts lying around. If you remove the hammer, you don't have anything to kill the mouse. If you remove the spring, the hammer is not going to move or pin the mouse. Um, if you don't have a catch or a metal bar, the hammer just immediately snaps shut, right? There's nothing to hold it open, etc. So, you have to have all of these parts there and functioning at the same time. If you remove any one of them, the whole thing no longer works. Now, remember... The whole point of neo-Darwinistic explanation is, is that natural selection takes something that gives an advantage to the organism and, and carries it forward, right? But if the system doesn't work, there is no advantage. Natural selection isn't going to choose a non-functioning system to propagate, right? Because there's no advantage. You with me? Yes. In order for this mousetrap to give any kind of advantage to an organism, right, if we're using this kind of language, this trap has to work or it's, there's, no, there's no gain of function. There's no advantage. But all these parts have to be there at the same time in order for it to work. The argument is, is that now random selection, gradual processes don't give you this mousetrap. If you just add one piece at a time, it doesn't work. Um, I don't know if I have time to make this little excursus, but I think it's important. He talks about in the book how we have to distinguish between a physical precursor and a conceptual precursor. So a conceptual precursor of the mouse trap would be like a glue trap where you use glue to get the mouse stuck and then eventually the mouse dies. Conceptually, that's a precursor because it's another thing that kills a mouse. But it's not actually a physical precursor because you can't move by successive changes from a glue trap to this kind of a mouse trap because you don't have available what you need. And you... Adding... Like, if you have a glue trap and you add a base to it, it doesn't make it better. It doesn't move you towards this. You have to have all of this present at the same time. Does does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Step three, then, is um, there has to be a minimal function. There has to be, um, this is going back to what I said a moment ago, the parts have to be there, but the parts have to actually work together. They they have to be the right size, the right shape, in order to work together. So I'll skip that part. Now, the point is is that we know that a mousetrap was made as an intact system, an integrated unit. So the key here is this what he calls structure function relationship. If a system requires several closely matched parts in order to work, it's irreducibly complex. And we can conclude that it was produced all at one time as an integrated whole. So this this is an awesome argument because at the most basic level, once you're inside of a cell, you realize there are tons of irreducibly complex things going on. and We're not even at the level of your eye. When you make a random mutation, you're not adding new information either. You're subtracting information, right? Moreover, these gradual changes don't explain this. This is why you have those illustrations like shaking up a bag full of letters, Scrabble letters, dumping them out and getting a sentence or a tornado running through a junkyard and producing a Boeing 747, right? In a cell, you have mini factories producing other things, right? So the, it's so complex that it, it fails to explain how things could come about. So, okay, I want to stop here and just for just a moment and ask if there's confusion or if you guys understand this concept of irreducible complexity. Because it's, it's a great argument that I think most people can understand. Most people can understand, like, oh, yeah, if I don't have all the different parts of a mousetrap functioning at the same time, it's not going to work. But you can't, like, like just say, add one piece at a time and get something good.
4: Something that's really cool, even, even with that particular drawing, yeah. is you would be able to say, this mousetrap... It's a picture, but if I created a physical, uh, yeah. if I made control, it just like this, it would not work. Yeah, why don't we see you know, way more examples of traps with bars that are a mile long? <laughs> yeah, you know, as opposed to you know, bars that are almost but not quite a little too short, right? Or too short, or what have I mean. We should have far more examples of those that are you know, missed it by that much. Than what we have in actually actual working systems and we don't. Right. Therefore, and so the 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 chance aspect, the the reason why the materialist worldview loves chance is because there's always a chance.
0: (laughs) And you can never ultimately answer that. Exactly. But eventually, when you look at the odds of this, it's so infinitesimally small. It is absolutely Per, exactly any, right. Anyone yeah. who,
4: who applied any kind of rigor would have to complete zero.
0: Mr. Owen.
3: Uh, also, with your example of the cell, yeah. the chances, I think they're not, it's not just that they're so small it's almost zero. The chances, I think they are zero. Because there, there are chemicals in the cell that are going to destroy each other anywhere else except within a cell. Yeah. So it
2: can't go little by little.
0: Exactly right. There are so many examples like this of exactly what you're saying, Owen, where it all has to be working at the same time or not only does it not work, it could be disastrous. So he talks in here about the bombardier beetle, which is super fun because it's like if that gets screwed up, I mean, that beetle is, he's toast, literally, right? Um, But but even more than that right so you you we can go even further we can go even smaller down to the level of proteins because proteins are created with certain combinations of amino acids and proteins themselves are super complex and cannot you can you won't get that randomly and proteins themselves are like the building blocks of these other things so like, it's like no matter how small you go The worse it gets for the evolutionist because random chance doesn't account for how those things can come about how did we get this dna that codes for these proteins that produce these systems even within the cell now you have thousands of cells coming together to produce things like the lens of your eyeball with its function it's just it's Insanely complex.
4: Moreover, we have built-in QA at at, at the (laughs) quality assurance. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So if it if it provided the system is working properly, if there isn't a mutation that that harms it, the the QA then says no, this isn't correct and destroys it.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Two more things, and then we'll be done. We're running out of time here. Um, So objections. What about all the chaos that we see in the universe? Much of it is not orderly. If the universe is chaotic, there can't be an intelligent designer. Um, I, I wanted to say to this that design is evident everywhere in the world, big and small. So I would ask and argue, is there more evidence of design and order or of chaos and disorder? And I think that the weight of evidence is on the side of design. The laws of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the complexity of life, as we've been talking about, even at the smallest level. Moreover, the chaos that we see, we have an explanation for what chaos is there, which is because of the fall. So how does the atheist materialist explain design arising by chance and natural selection? In other words, they want to say, well, there's chaos. Explain that. Okay, I will. But now you, in turn, explain why... There's design and order at this magnitude with these processes. It can't be done. Flip it around, we as Christians have an explanation for both those things. So how do we get to the gospel from this? Um, The evidence points to a creator and a sustainer of the universe. Man knows that there is a creator. We see his eternal power and divine nature evident in the creation, Romans 1, 19 through 20. We see God's power and creativity... We see that he is our creator and sustainer. The fact that the sustaining argument is another whole argument for God's existence that we're not even touching on. But we could go that direction as well. Like, you exist now, but why do you exist right now? You're not making yourself exist. (laughs) You know, another whole argument. Um, God has revealed himself in everything that he created. All humans are without excuse, verse 20. Why? Because although they knew God, they did not honor him as god or give thanks to him verse 21 rather than give thanks and honor to god we exchange the glory of god for idols man and beasts romans 1 22 to 23 we were made to worship and to do worship the only question is what are we worshiping that's the question in failing to honor god we sin so connect this to romans three twenty three. right All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't worship him as he ought. We do not live as if God exists. We do not fulfill the purpose for which he created us. The gospel then is the good news of how God sent Jesus Christ to forgive us and redeem humanity from sin. And how God is at work restoring the purpose for which he created us and all things for his glory. He made us to worship him. So rather than a purposeless, meaningless world, we can tell people your life has purpose and meaning, and that ultimate purpose is glorifying God. It's something that everyone intuitively knows, but suppress. It's also something that people want. People want meaning and purpose in their life, but it's only found through Jesus Christ. So that's a way that we can, and we're just nibbling at that, but that helps us to move from this idea of design to a designer. Why did he design you, humans? He designed us for his glory, for his worship. Even though we know that he's, that he's there, we suppress that in unrighteousness. We don't honor him or give thanks to him as we should. We exchange the creator for the created. We go into idolatry. That's sin. But, Jesus restores God's original purpose. Does that make sense? Okay. I wish we could open this for questions, but we only have a couple minutes until service starts. If you have questions, can you save them for next week? Or will you forget? Write them down and email them to me. Could you send us the notes? The notes, yes. I was talking about that. I didn't know how best to, to do that. I will send the notes out. Um, I think I'll try to just have a mental note of who's been here and just send it to the class. It's
3: just hard to... I would love to take notes during this, but yeah. if I do, I will miss yeah. so much of what's said. Yeah. Be, you know what I mean?
0: I'll be busy writing one,
3: one point, and Yeah, then, but to have your notes
4: would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the book of Ecclesiastes is, is wonderful. You referred to it last week uh, with regard to eternity in our hearts. And, and the, the driving theme of Solomon is saying, what's the point of everything? Because whether you do good or bad, you live for God or you don't, what have you? we're all ending up in the same place? Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. We're all everything is going to die. Therefore, and so, taking borrowing from that, we live as though there is no God. We ignore it, but we also live as though we're not going to die. We know that we're going to die, but we live as though you know it's so far off. It's it's absurd to even think about. That is how we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What we know to be true but we ignore it because we're disturbed by the implications.
0: Yeah, well not only is that true, but also on the moral side of things, we also suppress that truth in unrighteousness as well. Okay, we'll carry on next time.